Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, after doing a series of programs on global flood legends from around the world, you then started a detailed study of the flood account in Genesis. Yeah. At this point, we've considered the ancestry of Noah recorded in Genesis chapter 5. So where shall we begin today? Well, let's start with the narrative in Genesis 6. This passage begins by explaining what conditions had become like in Noah's lifetime, remembering that when the Lord sends the flood, Noah had lived 600 years. And that is definitely a long time for the world to plunge deeper and deeper into wickedness. Mm -hmm. I mean, look how rapidly the world has changed and not for the better in just our lifetime. Indeed, Scott. But we don't know if they progressed as rapidly in Noah's day as ours. It seems now, because of technology, we've developed instant contact, and therefore influence is possible between all segments of the world. So because of that, the spread of the consequences of our world's descent into immorality and lawlessness is accelerated. But as you pointed out, what we've experienced in just a few decades could have been occurring over centuries in Noah's lifetime. So, let's read what was going on. We'll read Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So these verses are the source of a host of questions that honestly I'm asked a lot. We've dealt with them on the program more than once. Uh, More than once, but since we've read it, I'll discuss it again. What we're going to talk about is what my opinion is of what it means. And as I always try and make clear, what's important is not my opinion or what I say, but what Scripture says. And frankly, the precise meaning of these verses do not affect the interpretation of what follows when the Lord speaks to Noah and sets in motion the judgment to come. But since it is of so much interest to so many readers of this account, I'll explain the issues related to its interpretation. What raises the questions is some of the meaning of the specific words are unclear here. What makes it hard is there are differing ways to interpret the meaning of the sons of God, mentioned in verses 2 and 4. To put it simply, they are either humans or angelic beings. And I'll say right up front, I think the sons of God were human beings, not angelic beings. But first, let's consider the interpretation that they were angels. One of the most compelling reasons to understand they are angelic beings is the description sons of God obviously refers to angelic beings in what is probably the earliest written portion of the Bible. Scott, what would that be? The book of Job? That's right. And in the first chapter of Job, it talks about the sons of God presenting themselves before the Lord. This can only be referring to angelic beings. And apparently, they're not just the quote-unquote good angels, but the fallen angels as well, because Satan is among them. So, though we normally would think of sons of God as being righteous beings, the description can also refer to demons. 
Therefore, one interpretation of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, is that in the days before the flood, demons were attracted to human women. And Dr. Scripture, you didn't mention it, but that part is unambiguous. Daughters of men surely is describing human women. Yes, I don't see any other way to understand that. It's human women that are having offspring as a result of the union between themselves and the beings called the sons of God. And if those beings are demons, then the offspring are going to be some sort of hybrid being, an angel-human thing. Now, lots of people think that is precisely what was happening, including creationists like the late Henry Morris, just to name one, who has my greatest respect as an interpreter of Scripture. However, as I said, I do not agree with that interpretation of the meaning of the sons of God in Genesis 6. And I have to admit, I'm sure my reasoning is greatly affected by my background in life sciences. You mean biology and biochemistry. <laughs> yes, Scott. I cannot conceive of any way for an angelic being to impregnate a human woman resulting in the conception of a human baby. My understanding is an angel, righteous or demonic, is a spirit creature not having a physical body, and certainly not having human DNA. So how could an angel and a human produce physical offspring? Now, I'm not saying it's impossible, because there are surely all kinds of things we don't know about in the spirit world. But given my understanding, I just think there must be some other explanation for what was going on. And I think there is another explanation. Sons of God can also refer to people who are followers of God like the Israelites were called the children of God. Exactly. They weren't all faithful to the Lord, but they were identified as a people with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh. And there is an interesting comment at the very end of Genesis chapter 4, which introduces the genealogy of Adam to Noah in chapter 5. It says this, To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. From that specific statement, I think we should understand that beginning with Seth's son Enosh, a line of human descendants of Adam through his grandson Enosh were worshipers of the true God Yahweh. These were the men I believe Genesis 6 is referring to when describing sons of God who were attracted to the daughters of men. In other words, the daughters of men were women from people who were not followers of the Lord. Well, that's how I interpret it. And the result of the intermarriage of believers and unbelievers is described in Genesis 6, 5. Go ahead and read it, Scott. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow, what a tragic indictment. Now, Dr. Scripture, I know that that statement sets the stage for God sending the flood to judge mankind, but I still have a question about verse 4, <laughs> which mentions the Nephilim. The King James translates the word there as giants. Mm -hmm. Isn't that another reason for thinking that maybe demons were involved? You know, perhaps the giants were some kind of angel-human hybrid? Oh, that's a good point, Scott. And without going into a whole detailed study of the meaning of the Hebrew word, which is Nephilim, 
They may have been giants. You know, Moses describes the Nephilim in his day as giants in Numbers 13, 32, and 33. Read Numbers 13, 32, Scott. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone, in spying it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So that's how Moses describes the Nephilim. But there's a principle we always need to remember when we read a word that identifies a name or place before and after the flood. They probably are not the same thing. The name given to something after the flood is recalling something from before the flood. I know you've used the example of the rivers named Tigris and Euphrates that flowed out of Eden in the days of Adam and Eve. The rivers given those names in the Middle East today cannot be the same rivers that existed before the flood. They are named after those original rivers. Correct. And so I submit the Nephilim of Moses' day, who were giants, given the clear description we have in Numbers and even in the books of Samuel, could not have been directly related to the Nephilim of Genesis 6. Those men were all destroyed in the flood. They may have been giants, but what we know for sure is what it says about them clearly, right there where they are named in Genesis 6-4. Quote, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Unquote. So it's safe to say they were the men in charge, the kings and the princes of the people, and they were wicked. In fact, the world of man descended into such wickedness, the key feature repeated several times in chapter 6 was violence. And this is what the Lord thought of it. Quote, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Dr. Scripture, I think a lot of people have questions about that idea that God was sorry he made man. Mm. I mean, the idea that God would be sorry for doing anything seems to contradict the idea that God knows everything before it even happens. Well, Scott, I know what you mean, but there certainly are some things we simply can't identify with when it comes to what God is like. And I believe it is important to take the word of God at its word. But I also believe there are many things we can understand about God, and we should assume we can because he created us in his image. What does that mean if it doesn't mean there are many attributes of his, that is, things that he is like, that we are also like? If it says he was sorry he made man, and note the second part, he was grieved in his heart, we should understand that just as we can be sorry, for example, we had to do something and yet we did it because it was necessary, or we are grieved by something that happened, even when we knew beforehand it was going to happen, God experiences those same thoughts and emotions. I really think that sometimes people have a distorted concept of what it means for God to be omniscient. Remember, God is not an inanimate object. He's not just fate. He's not the great Om, as pantheism teaches. The true creator, God, is personal. We were created in his image. So making decisions, being creative, experiencing emotions are attributes we can understand and identify them as belonging to God as well, because we have them. And the Bible reveals to us that those qualities are related to our creator. And thinking a little more about that verse, Scott, I noticed something in what was written, or more accurately, what was not written there in Genesis 6-6 that I'd never noticed before. And what was that? 
The verse says, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. He was sorry and grieved. It doesn't say he was angry, which is the kind of emotion I think we tend to associate with his decision to bring the flood. Sure. But right here in the passage that is describing the Lord's thoughts as he prepares to judge the world by sending the flood, we're told he was grieved and he's never changed. Several thousand years later, here's what the Lord says about the death of the wicked. It's in Ezekiel 33:11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. So just as the Lord implores the wicked to repent, the Lord was willing to spare anyone who listened to Noah and repented during the decades that he was building the ark. But no one did. Just Noah and his family were saved through the flood. And Dr. Scripture, I also noticed something in Genesis 6-6 that I'd never noticed before. What was that? It says that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. That's curious to me that it says on the earth, as though he, in a sense, would have been pleased with what he had created on the earth if he'd stopped in the middle of day six. Well, that's a very interesting thought, Scott. The earth, the sea, and all they contained would have been perfect with no human to introduce sin into it. Well, again, then he may ask the question, if God knew Adam and Eve were going to sin, why did he create them? That's a question I don't think we can answer with certainty. We'll have to ask the Lord when we see him. But when we do see him face to face, I'm absolutely positive about this. We'll be glad and grateful beyond description that he did create us and save us and take us to glory to be with himself. For just as it is written in 1 Corinthians 2.9, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. And that's not what I say. That's what scripture says. 